Their example, as well as reading this passage, has been convicting for me. And I trust that this passage will likewise convict your hearts as you seek to live a life of submission to the Lord. So hence, in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, there are four imperatives that should help you understand the purpose of living a submissive life. So before we begin, I'd like to place this passage in the context of the book. These verses conclude a section of the book that deals with living a life of submission. And Peter began this section in chapter 2 and verse 13, where he instructs his, his readers to submit themselves to every human institution. He continues by telling slaves to submit to their masters, even when their overseers are unreasonable or harsh. In verses 21 through 25 of chapter 2, Christ is uplifted as our example. He suffered and was reviled to bear our sins so that we might die to sin and live righteously. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, the apostle describes submission in marriage as Fred described in his sermon last week. Now, at the beginning of verse 8, the apostle brings this portion of the letter to a conclusion by summing up the submissive life which Christians are called to live. Peter leaves us with several imperatives, and, and these are commands on how to live the Christian life. Let's read again verses 8 through 9. Peter says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil. Or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. So the first imperative for the Christian is to prepare your heart. Prepare your heart. In verse 8, there is a, a list of implied imperatives that all revolve around having a proper heart attitude. Verse 8 deals with the heart attitudes towards fellow believers. While verse 9 describes our, our heart attitudes towards the lost. We are instructed to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble. And we need to make some observations about this list to determine what the apostle is commanding us to do. Now, the first observation is that this list forms a chiasm. Now, don't let that word intimidate you. Matt actually referenced it two weeks ago when he was preaching from Psalm 133. And as you can see in your notes, a chiasm has related ideas that parallel each other. As you get closer to the center of the chiasm, you discover the main theme that the author is trying to communicate. And chiasms are found throughout scripture, so you need to recognize them if you want to accurately interpret scripture as you read through the Bible. You know, back in the days of the Old and New Testament, they, they couldn't emphasize their words in the same manner that we do. I mean, they couldn't italicize the words. It's kind of hard to do that when you're writing. They, they couldn't really make the words in bold font. So what they would do is they would use a chiasm. That's one way that they would draw attention to an idea. And in this chiasm, we see the first idea, idea A in your notes, involves the words harmonious and humble. Remember that these words involve a prepared heart attitude that is part of living a submissive life. Let's examine the outer portion of this chiasm. Harmonious refers to unity. In the Greek, the, the word literally means same think. Believers are to think the same, living in harmony, in unity with one another. They are to be unified even amidst great persecution. Peter echoes the, echoes the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians when he writes in chapter 1, verse 27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
Please note that conduct worthy of Christ's gospel is done while standing firm on biblical truth and while striving together in unity for the sake of the gospel. Now, does this mean that the family of believers will agree on everything? Hardly. You know, I come from a family of three brothers. Growing up, you would be hard-pressed to find us agreeing on a lot of things. I mean, my younger brother still thinks that he's taller than me. I, I, don't, I stand on my tiptoes to prove him wrong. But anyway. But in the same manner, we have disagreements sometimes in our spiritual family. And some disagreements might not necessarily have a right answer. You know, the pattern on the, the church carpet or the type of flowers placed in the church foyer are examples. How do we resolve these issues? What about weightier matters? Issues involving doctrine, beliefs, or church tradi- traditions. How do we find unity? Well, the answer can be found in the related portion of the chiasm of 1 Peter 3.8. Believers are to be humble in spirit. So you can't have unity without humility. Humility prods us to submit to the desires of others when it comes to non-essential differences, such as you know, a pattern on the church carpet or the type of chairs. Humility also requires us to submit to the authority of Scripture when dealing with weightier matters, such as doctrinal issues. For a church to survive, it must have this same think on first-order doctrinal issues, you know, creation, the fall of man into sin, the virgin birth of Christ, his sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are all first-order issues that are essential to the Christian faith. And if we don't have unity on these issues, we don't have a church. But in these issues, Church of the Canyon has such unity. We have such same think. However, on other issues, we humbly submit to love one another, even when we disagree. You know, one example would be eschatology. You know, for example, this church teaches a pre-tribulational, premillennial eschatology. And we believe that's what the Bible teaches. And indeed, we believe that the Bible is clear on this subject. However, some people here might hold to an amillennial view or a postmillennial view. And we can still partner together as fellow laborers despite this difference. You know, as Fred stated so well in his sermon last week, quote, when we are truly one with each other, we are truly one with God, unquote. As believers, we are to submit ourselves in humility to the teachings of scripture with a united purpose, not just with each other, but to the commands of the Lord. Unity and humility are grounded then in a sympathetic and kind-hearted attitude towards one another. A sympathetic attitude, which is literally a transliteration of the Greek word sympathes, means sharing the same feeling as a fellow believer. Not only are believers to be united together around the truth of scripture, but they're also to be united in the sharing of pain and the suffering of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And by doing so, we model the example of Jesus, our sympathetic high priest. You know, Hebrews 4.15 declares, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Believers then are not to be indifferent to the pain and suffering of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Likewise, we're to be kind-hearted in our attitudes. A kind-hearted believer is someone whose emotions are invested in their fellow believers. Now, the Greek word translated as kind-hearted in our English Bibles actually refers to one's inner organs. It's sometimes translated as bowels, if you read the King James, or the intestines. In the Bible, the seat of man's emotion is not the heart, but in his intestines. 
When the Bible speaks of your heart, it's speaking of the seat of the inner man, the soul of man where your desires and thoughts take shape. Biblically, your emotions do not reside in your heart, but in your intestines. Now, I doubt you're going to see a picture of intestines on your next Valentine's Day card. (laughs) But biblically speaking, that's the seat of your emotions, not your heart. So being kind-hearted is an English translation of having kind intestines. And it refers to your emotions being attuned to your fellow Christians. We are to be glad when they are glad, to rejoice when they rejoice, and to be sorrowful when they experience loss. As you can see, being sympathetic and kind-hearted form idea B of the chiasm. We're to be unified in our emotions and in our humble attitude of submission and compassion towards others. And our brotherly love forms the center of this chiasm. Notice the central word of the chiasm. In the NASB, it uses the word brotherly. The ESV provides a clear translation of the term brotherly love. Now, the Greek word here is is not agape, which we all know refers to unconditional love that, that God has for us while we were his enemies. No, the term is Philadelphia, where we get the word Philadelphia, actually from our, our, our month verse where it says brotherly love. It's the same word. And, it mean, and Philadelphia, we all know, means the city of brotherly love. Now, I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm from Pittsburgh. And I can tell you that there's not a lot of brotherly love between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, especially in sports. I mean, we have the Steelers and the Eagles and, and, and the, the hockey teams, and there's not a lot of love lost between the two cities. Now, we have a few people in this church from both Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Uh, and thankfully, we have a brotherly love between us that isn't present between those two cities. And we have this love because our love is rooted in our status as brothers and sisters in Christ. This love is a love that conveys a deep sense of affection. You know, we, we spoke of agape before. It can, that conveys a sacrificial, unconditional form of love. But Philadelphia, meanwhile, conveys a familial, affectionate love. It's a love that we are, as Christians are to have for other Christians as, as a family connection. Even in disagreements, there is a love that transcends argument. Now, preparing these attitudes in our lives is not optional. You know, these are imperative commands that Peter is giving to believers. If you are a believer, then you are expected to display these attitudes. You will have unity in essential doctrines of the faith, which stem from a humble attitude of submission to the authority of God's word. You will display compassion towards suffering believers, and be loving when disagreeing over non-essentials because we are a family together through the work of Christ. You know, you know the idea that Peter conveys in this verse is best sem- summarized in the Evangelical Free Church's motto. You know, the EFCA motto is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, charity, and in all things, Jesus Christ. Indeed, I think that the writers of this motto must have been inspired by 1 Peter 3.8. A life of submission means a life of brotherly love and spiritual unity with fellow Christians. As a Christian, you must prepare your heart to have a right attitude towards other believers. Now, that does not mean that you should ignore sin or refrain from exhorting your brother to holiness. That's what Peter is doing right now. He's exhorting his fellow Christians. But it means that when you do so, you will do so with love. Now, Peter's command to prepare our heart is not limited to just our relationships with our fellow Christians. We see in 1 Peter 3, 9 that we're to prepare a heart attitude towards non-believers as well. 
we read that the Christian attitude towards non-believers is not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Again, Peter is using an implied imperative to not return evil for evil or insult for insult. Now, the first part of this verse is very similar to Paul's injunction in Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil to anyone. If someone treats you poorly, you're not to repay them in kind. Furthermore, if someone's, someone insults you, you're not to insult them back. Now, the word insult used in 1 Peter 3, 9 is the same root word that we saw a few verses back in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. Just look back at 1 Peter 2, 23, and this is speaking of Christ. Peter writes of Christ, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return or insulted. He did not insult in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. See, Christ did not offer insults when he was reviled by the Roman soldiers or by the Pharisees. His actions are an example for us to emulate. Indeed, we see in chapter 3 9 that not only are we to refrain from responding to insults, but we're also to give a blessing. Now, what does the term blessing convey here? If someone insults us, are we to say, well, God bless you for insulting me? I mean, that might not be a sinful response, but there's a deeper principle that's involved here. Blessing, in the context of 1 Peter 3, 9, speaks of the gospel. It speaks of eternal life. Notice the end of verse 9. It says that you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This blessing, which we're called to inherit, is the blessing of eternal life. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a proper response to someone insulting us is to share the gospel with them. It's to ask God to show his favor and his grace upon those who seek to injure us. Now that might seem hard to do, especially in the heat of the moment when you're being verbally attacked. But it's what we're commanded to do. That's why Peter commands us to prepare our heart attitude so that our reflexive response is to share the gospel. The last part of verse 9 tells us why we're to heed this command. It says that you have been called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. In other words, you have been chosen by God and effectually called to be part of God's family to receive a blessing, the blessing of eternal life. I mean, what a privilege that we have as believers. And the reason that you're called to live a life of submission and follow the imperatives that God commands is that God has shown great mercy towards you and calling you to eternal life. When you are given the blessing of salvation, there are expectations that come with that blessing. The expectation is that you will follow the commands of Scripture and live a life that is pleasing to God. Now remember, salvation is not fire insurance. It is a call to a life of blessing. That blessing comes from living a life that has been transformed through the redeeming and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It is a life of submission to the will of God as revealed in the pages of Scripture. Not only that, but you have been called to give a blessing to others through the proclamation of the gospel. That's why God has called you in the first place. You are to glorify him through the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is, a primary, is primarily a demonstration of God's glory as, a, as expressing his grace and his mercy. And if you are a Christian, you are not only expected to proclaim the gospel out of thankfulness to the one who has called us, but you are commanded to do so. This is the central theme of this passage and the reason for the imperatives that Peter gives us. The first imperative Peter commands is to practice a heart attitude of submission towards your fellow Christians and towards others. 
Such a submissive attitude prompts a response of blessing to insult. And this imperative then leads to the next commands that, provide, that are provided to us in this passage. So the second imperative that Peter commands us is to prevent evil speech in verse 10. Now, to understand the imperatives found in verse 10, we must provide a context for verses 10 through 12. So you see in, in 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12, the apostle is quoting from Psalm 34, which David wrote when he acted insane in the presence of the Philistines. Now, the historical context of Psalm, 30, uh, Psalm 34 can be found in 1 Samuel 2, uh, 21, pardon me, 10 through 15. And I'll just briefly cover that. So David is fleeing from King Saul and his fear compels him to jump out of the proverbial frying pan and into the fire. He flees from Saul, his enemy, to the Philistines, the historic enemies of Israel. Now, in this account, David's fear is palpable. I mean, this fear drives him to make very foolish decisions. When, when, when David flees from Saul, he doesn't take a weapon. And so he goes to the tabernacle, and there in the tabernacle is the sword of Goliath. And I'm quite sure you're all familiar with the story of David and Goliath. Years before, David had taken this sword off the prostrated body of the giant. After hitting him with that sling stone, David had taken the giant's sword and cut off Goliath's head with his own sword. So this is a very famous sword in the land of the Philistines. And because of this, the Philistines... When, when David comes to the Philistines, he's carrying the very sword that the Philistines all know. And because of that, they recognize who he is. It's not a very smart decision, but again, his fear is driving him. Now, obviously, the Philistines aren't very happy with David. They want to slay David, who, who responds by acting completely insane to try to avoid retribution from the Philistines. Now, David escapes the clutches of the Philistines by the grace of God. And in the aftermath, he writes Psalm 34. Now, Peter quotes from verses 12 through 16 of Psalm 34, which describe David's realization of how to live a long life of peace instead of a life of fear. And the one who trusts in God can do so even amidst great suffering. The truths proclaimed by David were just as relevant during Peter's era as they were in the time of David. And like David, Christians in the, in the first century were sojourners in this present world. They were under threat from enemies who sought to destroy them. Their fear of persecution demonstrated a, a lack of trust in God. They needed to hear these time-tested truths from Scripture. And that's why Peter quotes these verses. Now, likewise, these truths are just as important for you, the modern Christian seeking to live a, an obedient life of submission. We can do so even during times of pain and persecution. Look at me, uh, look with me, pardon me, at, as the apostle quotes from Psalm 34, look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, it says, For the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So Peter here is warning the Christian to, to keep our tongues from speaking deceitfully, to prevent evil speech from passing our lips. You know, in the modern era, this could also uh, be applied to our keyboards and our phone screens, couldn't it? I mean, how many Christians are quick to post on social media instead of keeping their hands from typing evil? Evil speech encompasses lies, deceit, hypocrisy, and any language that does not honor the Lord. In David's life, such speech included his doubtful language towards God. We are commanded to trust God and live honorably. The reason for this imperative ties back to the overall theme of a submissive life. Someone who keeps their tongue from evil is someone who desires life to love and to see good days. 
Now, life in this verse has a much deeper meaning than simply breathing. Life speaks of a blessed life that is never-ending. It's eternal. It has a here-and-now application that extends out into eternity. If you desire to have such a life, you will not speak evil. Why? Because you've been transformed and regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. If you desire to love, you will likewise not speak with deceit or evil words. Neither are loving. Such words tear down and, and demonstrate a lack of love. And you see, the phrase, see good days here, conveys the idea of, of happiness. Someone who speaks with evil lips, who spews deceitful words, will not live a happy life. Nor will he live a content life. Life, love, and good days are experienced via the new birth and are part of the living hope that Christians experience in this present world. And these can be experienced even during times of intense persecution and suffering. Yet there certainly is an eschatological or future dimension to desiring life and good days because this life here on earth will eventually end. But the believer's hope does not ultimately rest in this life or in this world. No, it rests in the future, in glory. We have a future hope of eternal life where we will live a life everlasting in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, please note that Peter is not advocating here a, a works-based salvation when issuing these imperatives. The person who does not speak evil or deceit, that, that's not a way to earn eternal life. Indeed, we're told by Paul in, in Romans chapter 3, 13 through 14, that the unregenerate person is one whose throat is an open grave. It says with their tongues they keep deceiving. The, the poison of asps is in their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This, this describes the unregenerate Christian, or pardon me, the unregenerate believer. Unbeliever, oh my goodness. The unregenerate unbeliever. As a believer, we are regenerate. The unregenerate person has uncleansed lips. The result of being regenerated by the Holy Spirit is a transformed mind and, and clean lips that do not speak evil or deceit. Before we are regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit, we have unclean lips that must be cleansed by the work of God. Now, we see this truth in Isaiah chapter 6. Keep your finger in 1 Peter and turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 5 through 7. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Now, this chapter recounts the call of Isaiah to both salvation and to ministry. Isaiah sees a vision of the Messiah sitting upon his throne in heaven. The throne is obscured by smoke. The regal robes of the king of kings fill the heavenly temple. And the foundations of the temple shake at the thunder of his voice. The seraphim are flying around the throne room crying, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah sees this awe-inspiring sight. And in verse 5, he recognizes his sinfulness. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 6. Verse, starting in verse 5, the prophet declares, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice that Isaiah recognizes his sinfulness. The expression woe is literally a curse. Isaiah is cursing himself. He knows that there is nothing that he can do to cleanse himself. All he can do is acknowledge his sinfulness in the presence of the Lord of hosts. He can do nothing. Only the work of God can purify his lips and by extension his soul. Pick up reading with me in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away 
and your sins is forgiven. See, only the Lord can cleanse the lips of the unrighteous. You cannot purify your lips on your own initiative. It is only the grace of God that sanctifies you and makes you holy. This is a theme that runs throughout scripture. We've seen in David's life that David keeps his lips from deceit in Psalm 34. We've seen Peter continue this theme in 1 Peter 3.10. And that that the Christian life is marked by sanctified lips that do not speak evil or deceit. Preventing evil speech is a demonstration of the eternal life that God has so graciously granted to you. A submissive life is one that is marked by purified lips. Now, a life of submission is also marked by actively turning from evil and doing good. The third imperative that we see in this passage is to prohibit evil and on the flip side, practice goodness. Read with me the first part of 1 Peter 3.11. Turn back to 1 Peter 3 verse 11. 1 Peter 3 verse 11 as we continue going through this passage. In verse 11, Peter declares, he must turn away from evil and do good. See, we need to break this phrase down to see what Peter is exhorting us to do. The phrase to turn away from evil signals an intensely strong rejection of what is sinful. You know, it's easy for us to hear this command and to have it have little impact on our life, especially if you're a Christian. But remember that Peter's audience is also filled with Christians. And you might think, well, well, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I give money to missions. Surely I'm not embracing what is evil. If that is you, please do not take this exhortation lightly. Peter is writing this to Christians and it is applicable to our lives today. Peter is exhorting you, O Christian, to strongly reject any form of evil. Peter is not, is not the only apostle to offer such a strong imperative. Paul likewise commands us to turn away from evil. Keep your place again in 1 Peter. Turn with me just back a couple books to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 21 through 22. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 through 22. We're going to see Paul describe this same principle. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the apostle Paul commands Uh, In this first letter to the church of Thessalonica, he commands the Christians to to practice a series of exhortations of Christian conduct. And as you read through this list of imperatives, you will notice a striking similarity to the exhortations of Peter. So look with me at verses 21 and 22 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul commands us to examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. See, the emphasis is on the believer's complete avoidance of any evil teaching or behavior, just as Peter likewise commands us in 1 Peter chapter 3. Nowhere does scripture permit believers to expose themselves to to the influences of, of what is evil or false. Instead, we are to abstain from such things and even to flee from them. Evil here refers to something that is actively harmful or, or malignant, like a cancer. Such evil, uh, which includes lies and distortions of the truth, as well as moral perversions, appears in many different forms. And because of its many manifestations, Paul warns the Thessalonians to shun, shun any form of evil. You know, we see these manifestations of evil all around us in the culture today. And last week, there was an especially perverse display of evil on the lawns of the White House. You know, the demonic, transvestite, and homosexual agenda being pushed by the leaders of this country indicate that we are a nation under God's judgment. God is currently judging America. 
It is wrong to think that this perversion will bring judgment on the nation. No, this perversion is the judgment of God upon this nation. We are a nation that has been handed over to its own perversions. And in the process of self-destruction, that is the judgment. If you read through Romans 1, Paul is extremely clear on this point. Now, before we get too smug and assured and criticize the current regime, let's remember that we are currently in this situation because the church in America has failed to turn away from evil. Far from turning away, we have embraced evil. The church in America as a whole has adopted the standards of the world in every area of its life, from its music to entertainment to dress to our worship, and yes, even our preaching. And we normalize our behavior by saying, well, everyone else is doing it. You know, we we expose ourselves and our families to every form of evil because we fear to miss out. You know, if we don't have the the latest technology or watch the same shows or play the same sort of perverse video games as everyone else, then we're going to miss out on something. We let our children watch evil shows that expose them to the ideologies of the world because, well, everyone else is doing it. We don't want to be too strict. It's not just our children. As adults, we support entertainment music, organizations that actively promote evil because we would rather submit ourselves to our nostalgia than submit ourselves to the word of God. You know, how many Christians attended the Dodgers game on Friday night where they honored perversion? How many protested Friday, but then went to the next game on Saturday? How many Christians watched the vilest forms of evil that promote the perversions of Sodom, transgenderism, promiscuity, profanity, all because we enjoy a particular TV show. Yet we'll criticize the White House for promoting such sinfulness and actively wonder why America is in such a degenerate state. But how can we expect the state to promote godliness when the church as a whole has embraced unrighteousness? As we're going to see in about a month when we continue preaching through 1 Peter 4, God's judgment does not begin with the pagan government. It begins with the church. Turn with me, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. And I think Chris is preaching this, so I, I apologize for stealing some of his thunder when he gets here. But 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Notice what the apostle says. Does he say, for the time for judgment, judgment is to begin with the pagan government? It's not what he says, is it? He says, for the time for judgment... For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. God's judgment is a reality, and it must first begin within these walls. America is currently under judgment for embracing evil, but such judgment first began within the church, and the American church does not even realize today or even recognize that it is currently under this judgment. I know this is very deep and hard to hear, but I can't apologize for saying these things. Repentance must first begin with the household of God. National repentance must first begin in my life and it must begin in your life. Repentance does not end at salvation. You are to live in such a way that you practice repentance daily in your Christian life. This is true submission. Now I am under obligation to faithfully exhort you with the words that God gave to Peter and implore you to turn away from evil. That's what Peter is imploring his, his, his readers to do, and thus I must likewise implore you. Everyone lives a life of submission to something. 
whether it's submission to God or to submission to your own desires. Who are you submitting to this morning? The Christian life of submission is one that is submitted to the authority of Scripture. And it is my duty, it is the elder's duty, it is your duty to exhort yourself, to exhort your families, and to exhort other Christians around you to live a life of sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God. That is your reasonable service, Romans 12.1. As Christians, we are to turn from evil and turn to something. We see in 1 Peter 3.11 that we are to turn to good, to do good. See, this exhortation is a general call for believers to discern truth from error, good from evil, righteousness from sin. It is a command to shun any of the, the negative teachings, influences, or behaviors that would displease God. Believers, if you yield to the Spirit's complete control, you will appreciate the character of Scripture and you will allow it to sanctify your life. You will begin to examine everything by the standards of Scripture. To do good is a command, not a suggestion. And what is good is defined by scripture. Not by you, not by me, not by the elders of this church, not by this denomination, but by God's holy word. Christian, it's not enough to forsake evil. You must also actively pursue what is good. To do good, again, is a command. There's a principle here in scripture. You must put off unrighteousness and put on righteousness. And you can only do this through the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. As a Christian, you must put yourselves in the channels of grace that God has so graciously provided. You must behold the goodness of Christ through scripture, through prayer, and through fellowship with other believers. These are the channels of grace that God has ordained to sanctify you and to cause you to become more like Christ. You see, you can do no good apart from Christ. So to do good, you must live a life of submission to the Lord. And it's only through the work of the Holy Spirit that you can turn from evil and do what is good. Now in conjunction with doing good, Peter gives us one final imperative in these verses. Read with me the end of, of verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. It says, For the one desiring life and good days... Uh, we see that he must seek peace and pursue it. And the verb translated peace and pursue both convey an intensely aggressive pursuit. It has the idea of a hunter tracking his quarry through the wilderness. Peace denotes a constant condition of tranquility and produces permanent joy and happiness. Christians, we are, we are to seek peace both with our fellow believers as well as with those who persecute us. Peace will only be preserved if believers do not insult and revile others. And then you must extend forgiveness to others who injure you. A submissive life is a peaceful life. It is one not characterized by squabbles or fighting over personal desires. However, the pursuit of peace does not mean abandoning the truth of Scripture. As Christians, we are to earnestly contend for the faith and follow the example of Christ. The truths of scripture will always be viewed with hostility by the world. And while we should seek peace, we must remember that the truth of the gospel is offensive to the world. Our desire for peace does not mean that we are to abandon the truths of the gospel. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 verse 32 to see an illustration of this point. Matthew chapter 10 verses uh, 32, pardon me, through 37. Uh, this illustrates how we are to seek peace or, or the, the limits of seeking peace. We all know that Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. 
And one day he will come again to bring peace to the earth. But such peace will only be achieved by Christ ruling with a rod of iron. We see that in Psalm 2. The Christian is not to seek peace at the expense of gospel clarity. So please note Jesus' words beginning in Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set man against his father, a daughter against her brother or mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves the son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Did you note Jesus' words in verse 34? Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but the sword. What? These are the words of Christ. The context is provided by verse 32. When it comes to confessing Christ and obeying the gospel, we must recognize that it will divide us from the world. It will divide us from our unsaved family and friends. That's the nature of the gospel. Now, this does not mean we are to be divisive in our attitudes. We are to seek peace. Peter makes that clear. Even though the message of the gospel is by its very nature offensive and divisive. The gospel divides the sheep from the goats. It, di- it divides the wheat from the tares. It divides the, divides the faithful slave from the rebellious servants. Yet we are to seek peace even as we proclaim the offense of the gospel. If we return back to 1 Peter 3. We see the reason that we are to heed the imperatives that Peter commands us to obey. The reason that we are to seek peace. We are to prepare our hearts. We are to prevent evil speech and and prohibit evil, practice goodness, pursue peace. Why? Because of the commands of the Lord. Look with me at 1 Peter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter is explaining why good behavior is imperative. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, the one doing good and turning from evil. To be righteous is to follow the laws of God. Now, only believers are righteous, not because of our own goodness, but because the righteousness of Christ has been applied to their life. Consequently, their prayers will be heard by the Lord, as they will not speak with deceit or or let evil pass their lips. The motivation to heed Peter's exhortation is that the Lord is with his people. He will hear the prayers of his people. And the point of this text is that the Lord's favor is with those who live righteously. In other words, he will bless them with the inheritance promised in verse 9 and and, and with the future life of the age to come, noted in verse 10. The hearing of our prayers reveal that we are truly members of God's family. Just as fathers, when, when a child comes to you this Father's Day, you hear their prayer. Why? Because they're part of your family. So we as believers, when we come to God, we're part of God's family and he hears our prayer. And this text harkens back to the blessing of the Lord found in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. We all know it. it's a very famous verse. Yahweh declares the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Conversely, the Lord turns his face away from those who practice evil, which means that they will not obtain an inheritance but God's punishment. 
Indeed, in the very next line of, of Psalm 34, which Peter doesn't cite here, David writes that those who are wicked will be destroyed by God. Now, Peter's admission in, in 1 Peter of, of this portion of the psalm does not indicate that he's changing the meaning of the psalm. What he has included has already made this point clear. We have now seen on, on numerous occasions that living a godly life does not determine your salvation, but it is a demonstration of your salvation. Peter is not suggesting that believers will live perfectly, and that such perfection is necessary to obtain an eternal inheritance. But he is insisting that a transformed life is a demonstration of that inheritance. And this is the perseverance of the saints. It's the biblical doctrine that teaches that the believer will not fall away from the faith, but will persevere until the end when they are glorified. A life of submission is evidence that God has redeemed you. You are to live a life because God has saved you graciously. You have been blessed with the, the most gracious gift that is ever possible. And because of this eternal blessing, you are expected to live a life of submission to the authority of God. And such a life has its ultimate purpose of glorifying God. So let me ask you this morning, are you living a life of submission? Are you preparing your heart to submit to fellow believers? Are you seeking unity through humility and love, being with your, your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you sympathetic towards them in their suffering? Do you have brotherly love for the people of Church of the Canyons? If not, I urge you, just as Peter did, heed the words that God has, has given us. Pray to God he grants you such affection. In your personal life, have you submitted your lips to prevent evil speech? Have you prohibited evil and practiced goodness? Remember, this is only possible through the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration. Have you pursued peace while remaining faithful to the truth, even as others seek to persecute you? You know, the purpose, again, of such a mission is not to curry favor with the, God, with, with the Lord. It is an act of thanksgiving to the one who has blessed you by calling you to an eternal inheritance. It is a demonstration that your life has been transformed, and that you are living life and love and good days. May you heed the imperatives provided by Peter and practice such a life of submission. May you be so overcome with the glory of the Lord that you seek him in every aspect of your life. And may we, as a church family, be drawn ever closer together in the love and affection of our Lord Jesus Christ, only through the marvelous grace of the gospel. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. Your word is humbling. It's convicting. It's been extremely convicting for me reading through it. I pray that it has also been likewise convicting to those who hear it this morning. May we humbly submit to each other and to your word. May we seek to glorify you by blessing others through the gospel. May we seek peace and unity with both our fellow Christians and then with the world that we might proclaim the gospel to them. Now, Lord, we love you, we praise you, we give you all the honor and glory, and we ask these things in the name of your son.